Hello and welcome to Edelman Edition's Leaders in Action podcast. I'll be your host. I'm Charlotte Lomas-Farley, Associate Director and Communications Coach at Edelman. With over 20 years of experience understanding the drivers of trust through Edelman's globally renowned Trust Barometer, this podcast series will look at how we best guide the world's biggest businesses and brands to understand how they drive trust through action and examine their view on some of society's biggest issues. Today, I'm very lucky to be joined by Tom Rudkin, partner at Farrah & Co., Tom advises the firm's clients, that's individuals, companies and other institutions, on all issues relating to their reputation, privacy, confidential information and data, whether it's responding to mainstream media coverage, protecting online reputation or dealing with defamation or harassment. We're going to discuss today his approach to reputation management and how his experience and approach to working with clients in the media has altered since he started his career. Tom, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, I'd really like to get started, if that's okay, just learning a bit more about you and, and how you got into your role. Um, what was it that attracted you to what you do? I think it's the speed at which you have to work and the consistently unpredictable nature of the job. That's what I love, the adrenaline. You never quite know what's going to happen, particularly on a Friday. We're doing this on a Friday. I fully anticipate I'll go back to my desk today and be confronted with something that I'm not expecting and that keeps it exciting. So describe, if you, okay, we've, we've said that you're you know, a partner at Farrer & Co. Um, what do you do on, on a day-to-day -day basis? We generally advise clients on situations where their reputation's under threat, there's a privacy issue that might impact an individual, there's a corporate client that's concerned about confidentiality or data, and that can come up in any variety of guises. So it might be that the client's concerned about traditional mainstream media coverage, Increasingly, they're concerned about digital and online coverage, potentially even artificially uh, generated coverage, manipulation, deep fakes and the like. Or it might be something as simple as a family dispute that's gone completely out of all proportion and a total breakdown has existed. So it is that variable. And what we generally try to do is work out an outcome for the client that's positive for them uh, within the parameters of what's possible and achieve it quickly. So a lot of people think that lawyers are in court all the time, but actually that's really a tool of last resort. You don't want to end up in a courtroom if you can avoid it. Exactly. So you, you touched upon there just how varied um, your work is. So are you working then primarily with um, communications teams or you also work with, with journalists and, and within the media as well? Yeah, so a bit of both. So we're quite unique as a firm in that we do some work on the media side. We do more work acting for companies, individuals and others who might be uh, who might have reputational issues. And on that side, obviously, communications advisors are absolutely fundamental mm -hmm. to the reputational strategy. So we very frequently work with in-house comms, external comms and often the two. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really interested to know if you're able to tell us uh, any information about what you would describe as your most interesting case. Well, it, frustratingly, it's very difficult for me to talk about anything specifically. Absolutely. But, but by way of example, this year we've been doing a big injunction case against the BBC for someone in the public eye where the issues are around privacy and contempt of court in the context of a criminal case. 
And we do a lot of work for a myriad of other types of clients. So anyone from your celebrity through to a multinational corporate. Mm -hmm. And generally, the most interesting cases are still the ones where you have a big journalistic investigation and you're trying to navigate the client through that. Mm -hmm. And those are, those, are the, those are the issues that keep clients up at night, in mm -hmm. my experience. So that's, also, that's obviously verging on crisis communications then, isn't it? Exactly. And that's, mm -hmm. where, we, that's where we work a lot with communications firms. Because mm -hmm. I think that, as I said earlier, there's a perception perhaps that lawyers are all about litigation, let's go to court. And the best lawyers are not of that nature. They think strategically. They think about outcomes for the client. And often... A legal solution isn't the only solution. You can't think in a silo. You think you have to think about long-term strategy and using the law in your favor to, to, to achieve an outcome. And in a journalistic investigation case, often that is thinking about how you might communicate afterwards, which the communications team will lead, and how we can impact the scenario post-publication by using the law to either mm -hmm. stop certain allegations being published or at least affect the way they are framed in an article. Mm -hmm. I, I want to come uh, back to that point a bit later about how, how the law is sometimes uh, sometimes used. Um, but first, I wanted to get a better idea of, of how you think the industry has changed, how your job has changed since you've been doing it. You have been in your role, I believe, for, for a, a very long time and doing it. So, um, And we know, obviously, in the, in the world of, of the media in particular, that has had immense change uh, over the last couple of decades. Um, how has, has your role changed, the rules of engagement, if you like, also changed? I, th I think there have been so many changes, actually, since even since I started. So that's 10 to 11 years I've been doing the job. And probably the biggest factor is the increase in digital content, social media, artificially generated content, which means that the traditional media cases are no longer such a big proportion of what we do. That doesn't mean they've reduced in number. It just means that so many more cases that we work on have an online aspect or a digital aspect or a data aspect to them. And that obviously changes the environment in which you're working and it alters the rules of engagement. So the rules of engagement when dealing with a journalist or an in-house legal team at a newspaper are very different to dealing with a troll on X or a disinformation campaign that's affecting a corporate client. So you have to be much more broad thinking in the way you approach it. You can't just be a media lawyer. And mm -hmm. all I know is journalism in the press. That, that doesn't really work anymore, particularly if, if you're going to be doing work, as I do, on, on not just on the media side, mm -hmm. but, on, but on both sides. And then I think the other th th there have been legal changes as well. So I won't, I won't um, bore everyone on this podcast <laughs> with a synopsis of the law, but certainly privacy rights have become stronger mm -hmm. since I've been doing the job. And a good example of that is, for example, in, in criminal investigation cases now, individuals who are under investigation but haven't been charged have a reasonable expectation mm -hmm. of privacy. So the, the starting point is they shouldn't be named until they're charged. And the most high profile example of that was Cliff Richard, who mm -hmm. successfully sued the BBC mm -hmm. uh, after he was identified as being under investigation bef before he'd even been arrested. In fact, he was he was never arrested. So there are changes like that. And then the other, on the other side of the coin, the defamation laws have developed in a way that make it a, certainly more difficult for corporates to mm -hmm. bring proceedings successfully. So there are these slight changes in the environment, but generally speaking, the law is fairly balanced, I think. Mm -hmm. So I think the, big, the biggest change is really around the context in which you're advising. And, and then there are these alterations in the law that affect 
how you apply it to the mm -hmm. to that uh, de developing context. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because you, know, you say that the laws on on privacy have increased. Yet, if we take those kind of high profile people that you know later on are, are found actually, you know, there is no substance to that allegation. They are still harmed by that, aren't they? You know, in, in, so even if a, a case is kind of dropped, that's the risk that a lot of um, newspapers will, will run now or, or journalism, journalists will run is that, you know, you have to be 100% sure of what you are claiming. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I, I'm, it's, it's very difficult because you have a Cliff Richard case where, um, for people who don't know, he was, he was accused of historic uh, sexual offences and no charges were ever brought. He was never even arrested, but the sting of mm -hmm. that initial coverage is going to live with him forever um but on the flip side you might have cases where there isn't just quite enough evidence to get the story out there but you feel that actually there's quite a lot of substance to it so it does work both ways and, and actually the fact it but the, the fact it works both ways probably shows the law is in a reasonably good position now there'll be people mm -hmm. who listen to this who disagree with that but mm -hmm. my view is the balance is not far wrong there are probably tweaks that can be mm -hmm. made and is it is it right to say that when you're talking about kind of privacy, the balance that needs to be met is obviously also the the public uh, right, you know, the pub, what's in the public interest and the, their kind of right to know. And that is the balance that needs to be met, isn't it? And it can be very, very difficult one. It's a really difficult one. So you, you are, for privacy cases, and privacy is really about the rights of an individual. So information relating to health, private relationships, criminal investigations now is endemically seen as private but if it, even if that first test is met you then go on to the second stage of the test which is weighing up where does the balance lie between the right to make that information public and the right to privacy on the on the other hand and there's no hard and fast rule in the uk on the, on the answer to that question so in the us you have a you have a system which is more in favor of freedom of expression mm -hmm. here it's much more balanced mm -hmm. and one thing i wanted to pick up on that is really interesting is that impact of AI, you know, moving forward. How much of your time at the moment is taken up with that and, and how much do you think will be in the future? Is, is it quite a big concern of yours within your law firm at the moment? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, I, I mean, there are two sides to it. There's the impact it has on the day job in terms of advising clients and how much of our work will center on mm -hmm. AI. And then there's the second aspect, which is how's it going to impact our role? And are yeah. we just going to be obsolete mm -hmm. one day? Mm -hmm. uh, so it, with regard to clients, we're starting to see quite a bit of advice needed in relation to AI. It's generally not in my area of work mm -hmm. at the moment. It's more, it's more for companies who are looking at how to use AI. What are the parameters around it? What do they do with large language models like ChatGPT? Do they take them in-house? But there has been litigation. So there's mm -hmm. ongoing litigation relating to um, a company called Stability AI, who mm -hmm. Getty Images are suing because they artificially generate images and Getty Images say that's a breach of their mm -hmm. copyright because some of the underlying material is derived from Getty Images content. And then we've had one case where, uh, where we're acting for some people who are in the public eye and are concerned about the generation of deepfake content. Yeah. Uh, Which in, we're hearing so much yeah, more, aren't huge, we? Yeah, and, and, and that's, that's fascinating. And I, I'm really well, interested to hear what you think, Charlotte, mm -hmm. from a journalistic perspective. But mm -hmm. 
there are two areas where we see it most for one's in the political context mm -hmm. and the ability to create imagery that could impact an election and there was an example of that in slovakia recently uh, where one of the candidates was purportedly talking to a journalist about firstly increasing the tax on beer mm -hmm. and secondly um suggesting that they were going to rig votes and buy votes and it was all completely bogus the question will be, do we need more legislation to deal with it or are the laws that we have in place at the moment sufficient? And the UK, I think, is taking quite a sensible approach, which is let's not rush to legislate. Let's wait and see how it develops mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because we're still in the hugely early stages of this mm -hmm. technology yeah. and it's going to move incredibly quickly. It's going to change how we work. Coming back to your point about mm -hmm. law firms, mm -hmm. it will, I think, make some of the more administrative tasks a lot easier mm -hmm. and more efficient. And that will have to be balanced against the impact that has on em employees mm -hmm. and, and what their role in the business is. The other, the other obvious consideration is that law firms have to live by confidentiality of client mm -hmm. information. So you can't start asking ChatGPT the answer to a question and give a load of client information to yeah. it. So you've got to be really careful what you feed into ChatGPT, haven't you? Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. And some firms are taking their own closed system in-house. Some of the big firms are doing that, and that's quite a sensible approach, I think. In fact, that's the only real approach at the moment. If you want mm -hmm. to use it in a, in a holistic way beyond, for example, drafting invitations to events or doing generic legal research, if you want to do more than that, then you've really got to derive your own model. Mm -hmm. And moving on to discuss now more obstacles, if you like, or, or challenges, misunderstandings that you might encounter... Now, as you know, Tom, I was a journalist for almost 20 years, uh, the majority of that time as a broadcast journalist. So I work closely with our in-house legal team, uh, specifically when carrying out investigations, uh, and they were obviously extremely helpful, important and useful. But I think sometimes it is also kind of fair to say that lawyers do have that perception of being obstructive. Do you think that's fair to say? Well, yeah, delivering messages that clients don't want to hear is difficult but also absolutely essential mm -hmm. um so you can't you can't just run with whatever a client's telling you equally as a lawyer you i think lawyers are instinctively cautious everyone knows that but you need to learn in my view at least how to be facilitative rather than obstructive mm -hmm. uh, and and i think that's particularly true when seeking to publish information because the tendency might be simply to see a risk and think, oh, no, we can't possibly publish that. Mm -hmm. And if that was your approach, you're never going to get anything mm -hmm. out there. Um, and so when I'm on that side and advising on a pre-publication basis, for example, as to what can be published, you're, you're looking at ways to get it out there. You want to help the, uh, the journalist and the editorial team publish the information. And there's always an acceptable level of risk and different publications have different acceptable levels mm -hmm. of risk. We used to advise some celebrity magazines and they would have different levels of risk depending on who the celebrity was. So right. Kim Kardashian, pretty sure she's not going to take action unless uh -huh. it relates to maybe her children. Certain other people you knew were high risk and mm -hmm. you would be much more cautious with. Mm -hmm. But I generally, so, so lawyers can be obstructive and, the, and there's this, I think, perception that Sometimes lawyers think, oh, we can never possibly apologize. An apology is completely the wrong thing to do. Again, that's that's not necessarily sensible. You can apologize when it's the right thing to do because that's more important than thinking too much about what the residual legal risk might be. Of course, you have to take that into account. 
But I think uh, generally, I think hard and fast rules in 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 this world don't really work. You've mm -hmm. got to be you've got to m make the way you advise bespoke and be flexible, but also always be mindful of the risk. You don't want to mm -hmm. be tell someone to do something and send them off down a road that's only mm -hmm. going to end in trouble. Yeah. Absolutely. And when you are advising clients, if you're coming up against a comms team, for, for example, what have you found to be the main misunderstandings or are there any certain obstacles that do come up time and time again? I, th I think there's a concern that when lawyers become involved, it can change the dynamic and mm -hmm. change the temperature and maybe undermine relationships, particularly with journalists that have been mm -hmm. built up over a long time. And I'm always very mindful of that because you might be dealing with one individual story, but that client and that comms, internal comms person and the external comms team may have to speak to that journalist next week and have to have a sensible conversation with them. So you do have to be mindful of that. And there are different ways in which lawyers can become involved. So you don't always have to send a really aggressive letter mm -hmm. if that's not the right thing to do in the circumstances mm -hmm. sometimes it's better either not even to be above the parapet at all mm -hmm. and just advising in the background giving the client a sense of what might be possible in relation to a particular piece of coverage or sometimes you engage in a way that's firm and robust but doesn't antagonize mm -hmm. and often that's quite a key distinction so but there is a perception i think that lawyers can come in and and sort of wade in and 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 undermine relationships mm -hmm. cause problems to a situation just change the temperature in a way that isn't always mm -hmm. productive um and again lawyer you don't it doesn't need to be like that sometimes mm -hmm. you do have to be robust if you're going to protect the client's best interests and that's that's the right approach but it's not always the right approach mm -hmm. and i think being bespoke and flexible and fluid is is probably the most important part of the mm -hmm. job do you think it would help potentially if there was more interaction more meetups, more communication between lawyers and communications teams on the other side or, or journalists on the other side. So they both have a firmer kind of understanding where the other one's coming from. Would that help, do you think, in relationships if we look at kind of moving forward? Or do you think this is just something that's going to be ingrained where that perception of, of the lawyer is always going to be that way? Yeah, I think, I mean, to be honest, everyone knows that they're doing a job or most mm -hmm. sensible people know that they're doing a job and there's nothing personal. It's protecting professional interests, whether that's the interest in publishing something or the interest in ensuring that coverage doesn't go beyond what's permitted. So I never I never think of it in personal terms. There are but there are occasions where it just gets a little bit vexed. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and that's unavoidable in some mm -hmm. circumstances. I think I, I, I certainly don't think, oh, I should never speak to a journalist and go and have coffee with them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just don't think of it in those terms because a, because we don't exclusively sit on that side of the fence, but B, it actually helps. You can potentially have a sensible conversation mm -hmm. with them, albeit actually I don't generally speak to journalists. It's not it's not often that the lawyer will pick up the phone to the mm -hmm. journalist. I'd mm -hmm. often speak to the in-house lawyers mm -hmm. and the comms team will speak to the journalist. Yeah. But certainly in terms of in-house comms advisors for our clients, yes, we, we see them quite a lot and mm -hmm. we speak to comms firms a lot as well mm -hmm. and we get to know them well because actually that improves the ability to work together. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the key aspects of that is having two independent skill sets in the room who might come at something from very different perspectives, but are able to advise a client from those different perspectives in a way that gets them to a solution that isn't isn't detached in the sense you don't have the legal advice on its own and the comms advice on its own and no one's talking to each other mm -hmm. because that doesn't tend to work very mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm.
and it kind of links nicely really into something else I'd like to, to touch upon now um, is is trust. Um, now, you may or may not know, but uh, Edelman uh, has our, our, our trust uh, barometer. Now, this is based on more than 20 years of uh, research looking at trust. Um, it shows uh, recently that perhaps unsurprisingly, trust is falling in the government. Um, there's also a lack of trust in the media, particularly social media. Um, is that something that you're coming across within your area of work? I know within some of my training, um, we now you know, tell people nothing is off record. Potentially that might have been something you know, 20 years ago we, we, when you were having communications with, with journalists that um, you could speak off the record. Um, and the argument now is, is that isn't the case. Does that come up in your line of work? Definitely. And both those come up, actually, the, the trust point generally and then the and then the on the record off the record conversation so i think dealing with the first of those the media are still in my view the most trusted outlet of information into by that i mean the traditional media mm -hmm. in terms of what clients are most concerned about mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in terms of location of publication but i do think i do think perceptions have changed and the conversations become even more polarized mm -hmm. from back to the political side, definitely, which, you know, in some ways makes, in some ways makes people less concerned about particular publications because they might think, well, they're always going to say something particular mm -hmm. about me and we just have to deal with mm -hmm. that. And that's the nature of the publication. But what really has changed is the volume of content mm -hmm. and the volume of commentary and sifting through and working out which of that content is harmful and damaging and do we need to worry about and which of it is throwing the bin mm -hmm. Twitter account with two mm -hmm. followers who cares mm -hmm. kind of and how much impact so to impact. have on the audience yeah and and you know obviously that's something Edelman and team will d will do looking mm -hmm. at the impact and we're then we're then looking at well what's achievable but we often are asked about social media content that whilst inflammatory unpleasant is to an extent something that a client may just have to take on the chin because we've got a scenario where there's effectively limitless mm -hmm. ability to uh, to talk about companies, individuals, mm -hmm. and organisations, mm -hmm. and you have to work out not only where the law sits but also whether it's actually worth engaging with it. Mm -hmm. And that's also comes obviously with the power of social media channels being able to share instantly that that information and the rise that we've been seeing with misinformation um and and fake news um how much does that play a part on um uh, with your your kind of dealings with with clients on a day-to-day -day basis that concern of misinformation because i think now obviously we're seeing when it comes to journalists and newsrooms there are dedicated teams that are now working to ensure that they have accurate information you know filtering information through Twitter, ensuring that you have multiple sources um, to confirm what you're saying. Um, and do you feel that the on the flip side, when it comes to clients, and if there are views about them circulating on uh, Twitter, which is say X now, um, or other social media platforms, um, is that a concern of them? Or they just feel that, oh, look, it's, dis it's disinformation, it's fake news, I don't care about that. But yet we are seeing that they're actually, you know, that does have an impact on, on a wide demographic. I think they are concerned and I think they're rightly concerned because it's more and more difficult to differentiate between legitimate commentary and what is just completely fabricated mm -hmm. fake content. So coming back to the deep fakes example we talked about, there's a statistic where Barack Obama and Tom Cruise deep fakes have been published on the internet and something like 78 or 79% of people weren't able to tell the difference between the two. Now that's just an anecdotal mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. 
but I think it permeates across uh, written content, image content, video content. So I do think it's an area of concern. And, and we had a case where what was clearly a disinformation campaign was engineered against a client of ours who was on the board at a very big company. Mm -hmm. And there'd been a total break breakdown internally. And all these messages were being sent out through Telegram, which is a notoriously yeah. difficult platform mm -hmm. to deal with, suggesting impropriety, affair with someone in the business, all this kind of... And it was all Totally fabricated, mm -hmm. totally fabricated. And on one level, maybe it wasn't causing that much harm, but it was designed to destabilize. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is one of the big mm -hmm. capabilities of mis and dis disinformation. It doesn't necessarily uh, get regarded as objectively plausible mm -hmm. but it's enough to cause problems and there will be enough people out there who think mm -hmm. the no smoke without fire yeah. uh, and and that has that ca that has a serious impact potentially i'm aware that i haven't actually got you to answer my question about kind of the on the record off the record so in terms of that is that also uh, a part a part of your of your job and, and advising clients yeah I, th I think that's changed a lot so there was this practice of sending legal letters that were that was titled not for publication mm -hmm. and strictly private and confidential and newspapers and other media outlets would tend to respect that and i think that has evolved they will certainly respect information that is being provided and, and is clearly confidential to try and assist them with their inquiries uh, certainly if they're a reputable outlet what what i think has changed is they won't necessarily agree that something is prov being provided off the record just because you say it is. So if you mm -hmm. really want something to be off the record, you need to agree it mm -hmm. before you provide it. Mm -hmm. But in a sense, that that doesn't necessarily matter. As long as you're aware that let legal letters and other communications might be treated as on the record, mm -hmm. then you know that and you think about how you frame it and you think about how it can be used to affect the coverage. Mm -hmm and what you would want to appear in the story and they won't necessarily attribute the letter to anyone but they but but the but the journalist and and the editorial team may look to, to reflect it and that's part of providing balance to the mm -hmm. story but it also means that if you say something that's completely inconsistent with a public position mm -hmm. then that's a risky mm -hmm. environment to get in so you have to think about that in mm -hmm. advance so you are fully aware of the risks of, of when you are obviously sharing that information and is that something that's changed that is something that wouldn't have happened, say, 10, 20 years ago, do you think? Yeah, I w not that it wouldn't have happened, but that it's Rarer. much more mm -hmm. common now mm -hmm. that, that you need to be aware of that potential. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I'd really, on that point, um, when we were talking about media engagement, I'd really like to have some time to discuss the issue of slaps, um, if you like. Now, just in case uh, someone listening to this doesn't uh, understand what they are, they are indeed the strategic lawsuits against public participation. Now, in King Charles's uh, first King's speech as monarch, it included a pledge of uh, legislation to protect public interest journalism. But the media bill did fall short uh, and didn't publish um, anything um, on the question of these so-called slaps. Um, they are now the subject of one of the hottest debates within journalism, seen by many uh, within the industry as a tool used by the powerful in courts to silence journalists and, and thus pose a serious threat to investigative uh, journalism and reporting. What's your opinion on the use of slaps? It's a really interesting debate. I think it is worth 
explaining what I understand a slap mm-hmm. to be, which is a misuse or an abuse or a disproportionate use of the legal process to try and stifle freedom of expression. Mm-hmm. And when you frame it in those terms, my personal view is that it's not as prominent as perhaps it's been portrayed. That's not to say there hasn't ever been mm-hmm. a slap uh, in the UK. I love the name, by the way. They've obviously <laughs> Someone's obviously come up with it. And thought of the visuals. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the UK, we, we don't have a law that specifically regulates slaps in a general sense, but there is now some legislation that deals with them where the reporting is around economic crime. Mm-hmm. And part of the test for whether something is a slap in that context is whether there's an intent on the per- part of the person or organization bringing the case to cause distress alarm Mm -hmm. harassment costs that are beyond effectively the normal cut and thrust of litigation Mm -hmm. so again it's this sense of misusing the process Mm -hmm. and i think it's important to acknowledge that just because a case isn't successful that doesn't mean it's a slap and just because it's brought by someone who happens to be wealthy Mm -hmm. and is unsuccessful that doesn't mean it's a slap that said there are examples which on the face of it look like they might have been more carefully considered mm-hmm. and that's putting it diplomatically i think yeah. um, there have been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of coverage uh, of these slaps recently there does seem to be a lot more awareness a drive um, we have uh, heard the justice uh, secretary saying that you know that there needs to be more done there's other people calling that the laws are inadequate that more legislation needs to be um, put forward and put through here in the uk um would you agree that we need, do need to tighten up the law? And I know you made the point that the slaps are in regard to economic crime, but is it is fair to say that sometimes these slaps are being used when it's not for economic crime? Yeah, so the law now is only in relation to cases involving mm-hmm. economic crime, but I think there will be legislation, or at the very least the government, this government have indicated an intention to legislate more generally mm-hmm. to stop slaps being brought... I personally think that the framework that's in place is probably sufficient as it is. I don't think we need to have wholesale changes to Mm -hmm. the libel laws, for example, because actually when you look at them, there are good protections on each side. The problem is when you have a case brought by someone and one side or another gets left with significant costs, Mm -hmm. liability, uh, and so you're talking of like £500,000. Yeah. So, so for example, if, if Russian oligarch A brings a libel case, loses the libel case, and then doesn't pay the cost liability, then the defendant, whether that's a newspaper or potentially an individual, gets left with that liability. And I think that's what needs to be tightened up. I, don't, I, I actually think the law itself is fairly well balanced, and some people would disagree with that, but that's mm. my view. But I can see that rather than trying to put in place a potential bar to bring in proceedings, which does bring into the conversation all sorts of issues around things like access to justice, I do think that one side or another shouldn't be left on the hook Mm -hmm. for costs, liability, Mm -hmm. where there's been an unsuccessful case. And there have been examples of that. Yevgeny Prigozhin, who's the the now deceased leader of the Wagner Mm -hmm. Group, is a very good example of that, Mm -hmm. where Elliot Higgins, as I understand it, was left with, who's the Bellingcat founder, uh, was left with very significant cost liability on a case that was totally baseless. Yeah. And this was actually against him as an individual, not Bellingcat. 
right. to come to Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's another that's another symptom mm -hmm. of a potential misuse of the process. It's not it's not necessarily the case that a, that a claim brought against an individual journalist is a slap, but it's it can be evidence. Mm -hmm. Particularly if there's a viable case against the organization, it does slightly beg the question as to why you haven't brought mm -hmm. it against the mm -hmm. the company yeah. rather than the individual. And I know that obviously cost is, is a major issue, but surely there's also essentially just all of that worry of going to court and the harm and the impact that can have on on an individual if they are facing obviously uh, those costs but also the damage to their integrity to their reputation um, and I would argue that on the flip side of this this could really deter journalists from investigating um, and now in the light of such a rise of misinformation and fake news, surely we need strong investigations more than ever. Well, I, de I definitely agree with that. Um, I think now more than ever, the, the reputable press has a, has a vital role to play. But I'm, what I'm not convinced about is that you need a separate law to facilitate that. I think, I think what needs to happen is that journalists who are investigating and, and want to publish something legitimately know that they're not going to be left on mm -hmm. left out left out of pocket as long as their journalism is defensible mm -hmm. and you know litigation is an unpleasant experience but i'd say that unfortunately if you're operating in this world there is always the possibility of that and there are mechanisms whereby cases can be struck out or dismissed at a pretty early stage now we could get i think we could probably get better at that mm -hmm. there may be litigation is notoriously expensive and lawyers make a lot of money out of mm -hmm. it um and you know maybe that's a good thing i don't know mm -hmm. probably not um and i think there are changes that could be made perhaps to stop cases at an earlier point but i don't mm -hmm. think that necessarily mean needs a change in the law it just means the process needs to be more but, efficient yeah. court capacity etc and then mm -hmm. you get into all sorts of conversations around that um, so yeah, I, I, I think it's something we need to be mindful of and look at, but I'm, I'm just not convinced that separate legislation is needed. And in fact, I'm not sure separate leg legislation will actually change very much. I'm, I'm personally not convinced that the economic crime slap legislation is actually going to mean that loads of cases suddenly get thrown out. Mm -hmm. And therefore, what's the point? And, but equally, it might it might make some people who have legitimate concerns about their reputation more reluctant to bring, bring cases. So yeah. you, the, the difficulty is, and I've seen this in, in the States where we have clients who have a problem with an American media publication. And the advice that you get from American lawyers is often there's an anti-slap law in this state, whether it's California or wherever. And it's just going to be a massive hurdle to try and enforce your rights here. Mm -hmm. And so people just think, okay, well, I won't. So here in the UK, in terms of our legal process, is it is it right and true to say that um, you can bring more more slaps here um, because the the legal system is is, is weaker when it comes to, to dealing with that issue? Um, because we are, you know, if you look at some of the cases that are kind of high profile, they are the um, the prosecution side, if that's the right way to describe it, um, are usually from abroad. They can, and they're taking their case through the English courts because they know that they can. Yeah, I mean, I I don't necessarily accept the premise of the question in the sense that I, I that there's been a lot of cases that have been described as slaps, and again, coming back to what I understand that to mean that that's an abuse of the legal process. So I'm, I mean, you could say it's easier to bring a case like that here. I think that's probably right because in America they have more fixed legislation, but the trade-off in America is that 
legitimate cases might also be stopped in their tracks because it's a lot it's a lot okay. more difficult. Okay. I'm afraid we're nearly out of time for this podcast um, today, but I did want to ask you a question, which was, a, I guess, a bit more kind of forward thinking. How do you see the relationship uh, in the future between lawyers like yourself and communications teams and, and journalists? Um, is there anything you feel that needs to kind of be worked on or is, if you're moving forward, how do you see that relationship? I think it's going to become ever more crucial. Certainly the ability of lawyers to work alongside communications advisors for a client because as we've talked about that volume of content is going to be ever increasing the different environments where damaging or private or confidential content might be published is going to become ever more increasing and there's going to be there are going to be more issues for clients to have to deal with and decide how they deal with and in some cases it will simply be a communications response in some cases you might need the law to help you and in a lot of cases you'll need to work together so the more that those two professions can understand how they work and operate in tandem, the better. Mm -hmm. But equally, the more they can operate independently, so the client's get to, getting two views from different perspectives, the better. And I think that's just going to increase. And I and certainly, even, even since I've been doing this job, the number of cases where you're working alongside a scope of different advisors, which includes comms, but it also includes digital intelligence and investigation specialists, I've done cases with psychiatrists where you're trying to read into what's going on on the other side. That is just going to increase in my view. And then in terms of the media, I think, you know, I, do, I, I think it's really important that we don't ever consider that the mainstream press generally is some sort of febrile environment that is spouting out fake news. And people will have views on individual publications, but trust in the press to bring us what is a potentially objective but certainly well researched information is absolutely fundamental because you look at jurisdictions where you don't have a free press mm -hmm. and that's that's a real problem mm -hmm. so i think that's absolutely vital and the way in which lawyers communications advisors and journalists interact is part and parcel of that albeit it's a much bigger issue you talked about trust earlier mm -hmm. that's really where it sits mm -hmm. do we retain trust in the media mm-hmm Thank you so much. I mean, I could talk to you for, for hours, but thank you so much for your uh, time today. Uh, joy speaking with you, uh, Tom. Tom Rodkin there um, from Farah & Co. Um, thank you so much for joining us here on this Leaders in Action podcast. Mm -hmm.